I always feel sort of like a poser coming up after music like that. You're expecting somebody cool and like, that's me. It's just me. <clears throat> I'm excited to start a new series with you guys today called Too Good to Be True. We're actually, it's kind of a bait and switch. We're actually going to go through the first chapter of John. We're going to take four weeks to go through the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Whenever somebody comes to me and says, hey, I, I, I kind of want to start reading the Bible, never really done that before. Tell me where to start. I usually say, start with John. Because it's a great way to get to know Jesus, who Jesus is, and understand him. He's the center of our faith. And, but a lot of times, people read the first chapter, and they think, uh, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't, his writing style is a little hard to get used to, and sometimes it feels a little repetitive, and you read it, and you're not sure exactly what he's trying to say. So we're just going to go through the first chapter in four weeks, and hopefully set you up so that if you want to do some more reading or read through John again, uh, we provide a little foundation for you. Because I think sometimes when it comes to trusting God and his promises and things that we read about in scripture or something that somebody tells us about our faith, sometimes if we're honest, there's this little voice in the back of our minds going, that sounds a little too good to be true, right? I mean, you know that feeling, too good to be true, low carb ice cream, right? It's just, it's too good to be true. Diet Dr. Pepper tastes just like regular Dr. Pepper. Uh, that's too good to be true, right? Um, when I was uh, about 24, 25 years old, we had just, Sarah and I had just gotten married. We moved and settled in this small town in uh, North Carolina. We got a phone call from some friends who lived in Georgia, really didn't know them all that well. We were acquainted uh, from college, and they said, hey, um, we would like to come and talk to you about an opportunity. And uh, I, I was 24 years old. I was like, yeah, I love opportunities. What kind of opportunity? Oh, it's a, it's a financial opportunity. It's, a, it's an opportunity to make money. Some of you know where this is going, right? You know exactly what kind of conversation they wanted to have. I was clueless. I didn't have anybody to tell me what was coming. And so I was like, I love the idea of making money. Let's talk. Let's do that. So they drove up from Georgia. Waste. They sat in our living room and they said, all right, it's really simple. It's just it's this and this and this. You do these things. And before you know it, you will make a lot of money. And we're like, yes, sounds great, right? Or is it too good to be true. Well, we found out a few months later after trying this out that not only was it too good to be true, but we actually didn't like it at all. <laughs> we just didn't enjoy it. And so it, you have to learn sometimes the hard way that some things are too good to be true. But when it comes to God's promises and the stories of our faith and the way that God has called us to live, is it, is it really too good to be true that we can have peace and joy and purpose by following Jesus? Well, let's, let's find out. Let's dive into the Gospel of John. We're going to start in chapter 1, read verses 1 through 3. John was a disciple of Jesus. He was one of the guys that, that was fishing, and Jesus said, hey, come follow me. And he left his nets, and he began to follow Jesus. He spent several years following Jesus, listening to everything he said, trying to live out what, what Christ called him to. And then after Jesus died and rose from the dead, John became a leader in the church and a writer. He wrote this, and he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the last book of the Bible, which is Revelation, singular. So just, just a preacher thing. Sorry. So let's start with uh, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
you're starting to see why some people may have a little trouble reading John. It sounds a little repetitive. It's like he's just saying the same thing in different ways. Is he? We'll come back to that. Let's skip down to verse 14 and read this part of this verse. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in the beginning was the word. The word was God, was with God, made all things. Why doesn't he just say, Jesus is God? I mean, we feel like that's kind of where he's going. Why doesn't he just say that? Let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about it from science. How many, any science fans, science geeks, fellow nerds? All right, be proud. It's, it's good. Be, you know, you, you know what EMC equal. you know science. You can even say things that sound sciency and smart. All right? I like the idea of science, but I don't really like to study, so that's part of the problem for me. In science, if you're a science geeky physics person, you may know of something called the Grand Unified Theory. Anybody ever heard of that? The Grand Unified Theory. In 1974, some physicists uh, were talking about and studying uh, how can we prove the Big Bang? Because there's this big question uh, in science and really in all of life that asks, where did we come from? How did we get here? Where did this all start? And, and, and the Big Bang Theory is an idea about where we came from. And so these physicists said, wouldn't it be great if we could actually prove the Big Bang Theory? I mean, you can't really prove it because you can't observe it. You can't reproduce it. You can't demonstrate it in a lab, right? But they thought, wouldn't it be great? So they said, you know, I bet we could take a big step in that direction if we could prove that the four main forces in the universe all came from the same place. And you guys know the four main forces of the universe. Let's say them together. Strong nuclear force, weak nuclear force, electromagnetic force, and gravitational force, right? You all know that. It's like your ABCs. <laughs> I didn't know it 10 days ago, so all right. Uh, so um, all these forces... Uh, Three of them are related. Gravity seems kind of like it's the weird, you know, step cousin here that doesn't really fit in. So they said, what about these three, strong, weak, and electromagnetic? If we could prove that these forces all came from the same place, that had the same source, that at one time they were one, that would be a big step towards proving the Big Bang. And they called this idea the Grand Unified Theory. And so since 1974, physicists, there's been a branch of physics theoretical physics that's trying to prove that these forces were all one. And there's been an add-on to that as well. They thought, you know, why settle for three forces as one if we could get four forces? If we throw the weird cousin gravity in there and make all four of these four forces come from the same place, then that, that would seal the deal. We could prove the Big Bang Theory at that point. That one is called the theory of everything. Because Grand Unified Theory was already taken, they just got, it's the theory of everything. And so um, some steps have been taken in this direction in science. Uh, there's been a, uh, the building of this thing called the Large Hadron Collider. You guys know about that, right? Um, it's, it's a big thing, sciencey thing out in Switzerland that does sciencey stuff. It's pretty amazing, I hear. <laughs> the Large Hadron Collider is a particle collider, and it, 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 enables scientists to test some of these theories about these forces and how they work and the Higgs boson particle and all that stuff. It's really fascinating. You should look it up. So they thought, well, once we get this Large Hadron Collider up and running, we can test this Grand Unified Theory and find out if it's really true. So they ran some tests. They, they saw some things they really liked. But they figured out that in order to actually reproduce what they were trying to reproduce, 
we need a lot more energy in, in uh, this collider. In fact, they, they said human beings are not, are not capable of producing enough energy to actually test this the way that it needs to be tested to prove this theory. So right now, we can't even test it, okay? They also figured out, as, as theoretical physicists will often do, that we actually don't know all of the dimensions of space that must exist in order to prove this theory. There must be other dimensions of space we have not yet discovered that we need to discover in order to prove this theory that all these forces came from one place. You guys are all looking at me like, what is he talking about? Would you please just get back to the Bible? All right, I will. Just one second. So here's the reason why this whole discussion is happening, and it's been a huge part of theoretical physics for years, is because we have this question, where did we come from? And there's this potential answer out there related to the Big Bang Theory that we desperately want to prove, and we can't, can't prove it. That would, for a lot of people, that would be like, all right, now I know where to go for my big questions about life. Who am I? Why am I here? What really matters most? How did we get here? How do I know right from wrong, good from evil? Like all of these big questions, now we have a place to go because we have a proven theory about where we started. That's, that's what we're after. That's what humanity is chasing. This is not a new pursuit. 500 years B.C., there was this guy named Pythagoras. You guys remember Pythagoras? Some of you are having, breaking out in a cold sweat with algebra memories right now. Um, a squared plus B squared equals C squared. That's Pythagoras. Pythagoras postulated that there is this force that holds the universe together. And we don't know what it is. I mean, we can't really describe it, but there's this force that kind of, it's, it's where you would go for your answers to questions like, how did we get here? Who are we? Why, why are we here? This force that holds everything together. The Greeks believed this and, and explored this theory for hundreds of years. Fast forward to the first century to a guy named Philo, who was a Jewish philosopher, lived in Alexandria at the time of Jesus. If you're looking for baby names, Philo's a great one. I love it because it means love. It's a good one. So Philo kind of developed this philosophy a little more. He actually called this force the captain and pilot of the universe, that there is this something out there that we can't, we can't see it, we can't touch it, but it explains everything. It's, it holds everything together. It's where everything came from, and it's why it all still exists and doesn't just blow up, right? The Greeks had a word for that force. They called it logos. That's the Greek word that they used for that. Logos expressed this idea that there is one thing out there that you can turn to for the answers to your big questions about life. Now, let me read the first part of John 1.1 for you in Greek. It goes like this. In arche ein ha logos. In arche ein ha logos. Did you catch logos in there? John wrote, in the beginning was the Lagos. Now, this is sort of a shout out to two different groups. One is the, groups, the group of Jews, traditional Jews, when they hear the words in the beginning, guess where their minds go? What's the first, those are the first words of the Bible. Those are Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? That's how the Bible starts. He's also speaking to the Greek and philosophical community by saying, in the beginning, there was the Lagos. And guess what? The Lagos was with God. And the Lagos was God. And 
through the Lagos, everything was made. In fact, there was nothing that's been made that wasn't made by the Lagos. And the Greeks at this point are like, preach. You're, you're absolutely right. We already believe that. We, we believe that there's a Logos out there, that there's something out there, and you can call it God if you want to. We just call it the Logos. But we believe that there's something that holds everything together, and it, it's the reason why we're here, and it, and it keeps everything going. We believe that. And then John's going to blow their minds in verse 14 when he says, and the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Greeks are like, hmm, I, mm, I don't think so. I don't think so because... The Logos has to be outside of human experience if it's holding everything together. It can't, be, it can't be in our world. It has to be outside of our world. And John's like, no, 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 you don't get it. You got it half right. You're half right. There is a thing out there that holds this all together, but it's not just a thing. It's a person. And that person is God in Abad, God in the flesh, who says, I, I am not content with being outside of your experience. I want to be in your experience. I want to be in your world. And Jesus is the Logos. In the beginning was Jesus, the Logos, the Word, the thing that holds all things together. And he was with God, and he was God. And then he became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Now, why, why does any of this matter? Some of you are like, you just, you're geeking out on me. I don't get it. don't care. Because I think human beings are still looking for this. Where, where do I turn? for my answers to life's big questions. Where do I turn? Where do I go? Okay, we, we can't prove the Big Bang Theory. Maybe it's not that. Where do I turn? Where do I go? And we have a lot of theories. Humanity has come up with a lot of theories about where to turn, where to go, for our answers to life's big questions. I want to talk about some of those because some of these you're either going to connect to, you're going you're gonna to go, oh, yeah, that makes sense, I've been there, or you're going to know somebody who you kind of go, oh, that explains why that person does that or why they think that way. It's because we all want a theory of everything. We want an answer that if we could just go to one source and go, okay, that, that explains why we're here, that explains who I am, what I'm supposed to be doing with my life on earth. So one of these uh, theories is that we'll call it the theory of others or the re or relationships. Maybe relationships is why we're all here. Maybe it's for others. Maybe what, I, uh, what I'm living for is to be able to fill in this blank. As long as blank loves me, I'm okay. As long as this person, or maybe it's a group of people. So what, who, would, who would have been in that blank for you through your life? As long as mom loves me, as long as dad loves me, I'm okay. And, and then maybe as you, as you grew up, it was, it was a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You thought, as long as... This person loves me. I'm good. And then maybe you got married, and it was as long as, as long as he loves me, as long as she loves me. And then you had kids, and you thought, oh, man, this, this is a different kind of love. And then you had grandkids, and you thought, this is the best kind of love ever. As long as my grandkids think I'm the, the cool grandpa, we're good. We have this others-centered, like, this is my theory of everything. It's about getting love from the right person. The best uh, way for us to see this in real life is to watch dogs. Dogs are others-centric. <laughs> dogs have a person, right? You know this, for most dogs have a person. Our dog's person is my wife, Sarah. Uh, she is Cedric's person. Our dog's name is Cedric. And he, he is at his happiest when he is sitting in her lap, licking her face. That's like, that's like heaven for Cedric, you know? 
And um, he can't always do that. In fact, I encourage him to not do that uh, frequently. But that's, that's when he's at his happiness. So if he can't be in her lap licking her face, he must at least be touching her. Or he must be at least near enough to touch her. And so he sits at her feet. And we, we love to run these little experiments with him. Like he'll be sitting comfortable in his little bed, mostly asleep, and she will just stand up. And he's up, wagging his tail. And she can just walk to another room. And he's right on her heels and she can just turn around and walk back. Like she doesn't have to be going anywhere, doing anything, just wandering aimlessly around the house. And Cedric is right at her heels the whole time. When she leaves, he cries. When he hears her car coming back into the driveway, he does this really weird wag, tail wagging, crying thing. Like he's happy, but he's also sad, like at the same time. He is other-centric. And we kind of go, oh, that's cute, that's sweet. Not in people, it's not... <laughs> When people do that, it's not cute and sweet. It's, I mean, you've seen it. It's kind of sad. You're kind of like, all right, like if, you're other, if, you're, if that person is the center of your universe, what happens when they let you down? Because they are going to let you down, right? But for some people, this is how I define. Who, who am I? Well, I am who this person says I am. I am who's the person that, whose love I need. I, whoever they say I am, that's who I am because I need their love. Why am I here? I'm here to... Love and be loved by whoever it is, this person. And maybe it changes. What matters most to me? Who loves me? That's what matters most. Who loves me? That's one theory. That's one way that maybe we, we try to answer this question. How, what ties it all together? What is my reason for existence? Why am I here? One of these ways is others or relationship-centered. Another one is what I'm going to uh, call relative superiority. I think I made that phrase up, but... Maybe not. Maybe I dreamed it. I can't spell it. Okay, relative superiority. Maybe that is my theory of everything. Here's what I mean by relative superiority. As long as I am more blank than most, I'm okay. So this is a comparison thing. This is saying, okay, the people around me, I need to have one up on somebody all the time. So if, if you're a really intelligent person, I kind of look at you and go, well, I'm not smarter than them, but I'm probably funnier, you know, it's, Really intelligent people are not that funny. So if, if you're really smart, then I kind of look at you and go, yeah, you're smart, but I'm funny, right? Or if you're funny, maybe I think I'm smart, you know? It, so what, what I'm doing, my whole goal is to figure out, like, how am I a little more than you in some area that matters? Maybe I'm nicer. Maybe I'm holier. Maybe I, maybe I know more Bible verses than you. Maybe I, maybe I have this, like, better reputation for generosity than you, but I'm always looking to get one up on somebody. So who am I? Well, I, I am who others say I am. Like, I am what I see in other people. Sometimes we, we get surrounded by people that, that we can't figure out a way to get one up. Well, they're smarter, they're funnier, they're wealthier, they're nicer. I always feel terrible about ourselves around those kind of people because the whole goal my, my reason for everything is I got to be a little more better at something than somebody. That's what gives me value and worth and, and purpose. So that's what I'm here for. I'm here to be more educated than somebody, more wealthy than some, more wealthy, wealthier than somebody, funnier than somebody, nicer than somebody. That's my goal. That's relative superiority. Uh, another option is uh, self-sufficiency. I'm not going to try to spell sufficiency in front of you, so we'll just go with self. Self-sufficiency is, for some people, their theory of everything. It is that I am here 
to do whatever I want. Like, really what matters most is, is what I want. And as long as I can have what I want, as long as I can have fill in the blank, I'm good. And whatever I decide to put in that blank is fine because it's, it's up to me. It's my choice, right? And I can, I can put whatever I want in that blank. And as long as I can get that, I'm good. That's, that's my theory of everything is it's, it's about me. And who am I? I am who I say I am, whoever I say I am. And I don't, I don't care what you think. It really doesn't matter to me. I'm who I say I am. And why am I here? I'm, I'm here to do whatever makes me happy, whatever fulfills me. And maybe what fulfills me is something really positive. Maybe it fulfills me to be generous and kind and have integrity. That's what I want, and so that's what I'm going to do. Maybe it fulfills me to take from other people until I get what I want. But that's my theory of everything. As long as I'm happy, whatever, if I can get what makes me happy, I'm good. Next, uh, well, I want to I read this for you. This is not a new idea. It's been around for um, at least since Walt Whitman. How many, any literature fans in here? Poetry? Walt Whitman? Anybody? Yes! Love you people. All right. Uh, this is a line from some, uh, some lines from Walt Whitman poem. Oh me, O oh life, oh the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O oh me, O oh life? Do you hear the big question there that he's asking? What, what, why am I here? Why does it matter? Where do we come from? Here's his answer. Answer, that you are here, that life exists in identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. That's Walt Women's answer in this poem that's very appropriately titled Song of Myself, right? That's his answer. Is this is, it's really about me and whatever I want and whatever I need and whatever fulfills me, that's my theory of everything. One more I want to uh, add up here, and that is work and accomplishments, work or accomplishments. That the most important thing is what I am putting into the world, what I'm getting done, my, my productivity, which that was productive. I spelled accomplishments and got it squeezed in there. All right. This is my theory of everything, that what, what's really this is all about is, is that I am working hard and producing something good. I, I'm the kind of person that, that if I'm going to lay my head on the pillow at night and be able to sleep, it's only if I can go, I, I put in a hard day's work, I, I did something good, I accomplished something good with my time. If I get to the end of the day and I look back and go, man, I didn't get anything done today. In fact, I let people down, I missed an appointment, I, I missed a deadline, and I'm, I'm frustrated and unhappy with myself because I'm measuring my, my theory of everything is based on what am I producing? What am I accomplishing in the world? What am I getting done? And maybe how do I compare that to what other people are getting, getting done? So who am I? I am what I do. Why am I here? I'm here to work hard and produce something good in the world. What matters most? Whatever I accomplish and contribute to society, the product of my labor, that's what matters most. Now, some of you may have resonated with some of this. In fact, for some of you, probably when I was reading this description, you were like, well, what's wrong with that? What, what's wrong with wanting to be loved by other people so much that that becomes your center? What's wrong with wanting to be happy and, and chasing what makes you happy? What, what's wrong with really caring about your work and trying to produce something good? Well, listen, nothing's wrong with those things. This, this one, probably not good. But nothing's wrong with those things. It's just they're not made to be the center. We, we're not made to function with this at the center of our lives. 
that this is where we turn for answers to the big question. So what goes at the center? Well, John, John told us already. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And his name is Jesus. Jesus, for the believer, is the theory of everything. He, he's what brings it all together. He's where we started. In the beginning was the word. He's how we got here. By him, all things were created. He's our everything. Where do you turn to for big questions about who am I? Jesus said in John 3.16, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved who? Everyone. That's, that includes you. God so loved you that Jesus died so that you could be with God forever. Who are you? How do we answer that question, who am I? I am a beloved child of God, loved so much that Jesus died so that I could live out my purpose of living in eternity with God. That's who I am. That sounds a lot better than some of these other things, I think. Why am I here? I'm here to honor God. Matthew twenty two thirty seven. Jesus was asked, what's the most important commandment, Jesus? Tell us what it's all about. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is what it's all about. It's your connection to God. This is why you're here, is to live in relationship with God. What matters most, Jesus says, the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What matters most to God is how you treat the people around you. That's what matters most to God. So where do we turn for life's big questions? Jesus. When Jesus is at the center and we refuse to let anything else take his place, then we have a place to turn for those big questions. Why does that matter? Some of you are like, I figured this out a long time ago. I've always known I can go to Jesus. Some of you are not really sure if this is true. This sounds a little too good to be true, that there can be a theory of everything, that, that Jesus can actually give me everything I need. That sounds a little too good to be true, maybe. Here's why it matters. Because God's plan, here, here's what God is, is looking for to happen. He created all of us, as Jesus said, for eternity with God. But some people don't know, and some people don't know how to get there. And he told his disciples, you are the light of the world, that people should be able to look to you and see this truth lived out, that Jesus holds everything together. They should be able to look at your life and see this lived out because believers and non-believers should do things differently. Christ followers and non-Christ followers should do things differently. For Christ followers, we, we, we want to be loved too and we want to love people, but what happens when the person that you've put in your blank lets you down, fails you in a major way? What happens? Well, if, if you're not Jesus-centered when that happens, then it's See you later. Write them off. You're not going to give me what I need. I'm moving on. Or maybe it's revenge. You're going to do that to me. Watch what I do to you. But for a Christ follower, what happens when somebody that you love lets you down? We do something really strange and difficult. It's called forgiveness. It's a little counterintuitive. But we, we look at somebody who's hurt us and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to hold this against you. I'm not. I could, but I'm not. I choose to not hold this against you. We forgive. 
And when we forgive, I think non-believers should look at us and go, why? 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 What are you doing? You realize you don't have to do that. You realize they don't deserve your forgiveness. We go, yeah, but I was forgiven, so I forgive. This is my theory of everything. When we get caught up in comparing ourselves to other people, this relative superiority thing. Do you know what, what's the worst thing for, for people who live like this? And I've been in, in this at different times in my life is when, when you're living based on your comparison to other people, it is impossible for you to celebrate good things in other people's lives. Something good happens to somebody else and we can't celebrate, we can't be happy for them because we're like, oh, they, they don't deserve, that should have been me. You win the lottery, you don't deserve that, you're just going to blow it, that should have been me. You get the promotion, I work twice as hard as you, that should have been me. We can't celebrate other people's successes and victories because we're trying to win this comparison game. And we can't be sad when other people experience loss and pain. The, somebody else suffers and we kind of go, saw that coming. I never would have made that decision. I never would have blown it like that. They probably deserve it. That's this comparison thing coming out in us. But when you're, when you're Jesus-centered, when he is your theory of everything, what happens when we see other people win? We get excited. I'm so happy for you that you got that job. I'm so happy for you that you got that promotion. I'm so happy that you found that person and have that relationship. Because I don't need to get my value from you. I've already got it from Jesus, so... You're happy, I'm happy. When something bad happens to somebody, maybe it's somebody I don't even like, but something bad happens, I'm sad for them. Because I don't, I don't get my value from being better than you. I get my value from Jesus. So if, if you're sad, I'm sad. That's, that's how Christians live. And when we do that, people should go, hey, I thought that person was mean to you. Why are you happy for them? I, I, I'm actually getting my value from a different place. I got something different at the center of my life. For people who want to live in self-sufficiency, when it's really all about getting what I want and me being happy and me being fulfilled, it's just not a big deal to take from other people. I'll take and take and take whatever I need to take so I can be happy and get what I want. But for Christ followers, we give. We don't take. We serve. We don't rule. And people look at that and go, why? You're, you're never going to get what you want if you continue to put yourself at the end of the line. We go, well, well, Jesus said that the first will be last, the last will be first. So well, was, he died and rose from the dead. I'm just going to go with what he says. <laughs> right? What, what about the pe people who live with work and accomplishment? Here's, here's the problem that we run into. Sometimes we kind of look at what we're producing and we go, it's not enough. Or we fail and we think, I blew it. This was my one chance to put something good into the world and I blew it. For the follower of Jesus, we fail. Sometimes we blow it. Sometimes we don't produce what we want to. And we know that there's always grace for our failures. Always. And people look at us and go, how can you be okay? I mean, you just lost your job. That's, that was your livelihood. How can you be okay? God still loves me. Money's really not a problem for him. We'll figure it out. When people see Christ followers living this Jesus-centered life, they should be able to look at us and go, man, I, there's something different about that person. They're, they're handling things in life in a way that 
I don't understand, but I'm really kind of jealous of. I really want to know more. And it's our opportunity. It's our open door to talk to them about Jesus. Hey, do you know that there's, there's a reason why I am the way that I am? There's a reason why I can act the way I act? It's all about Jesus. It's not me. I'm nothing special. He is. I'm not. This, this is what's supposed to happen. This is what it means to be the light of the world, that we live out our faith in Christ in such a way that other people look at it and see Jesus. Is that too good to be true? It's true. Try it out. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Christ and the way that he just draws us to him. Thank you that we can turn to him for our big questions in life. And my prayer is, God, that we would, we would just trust you on that. Even though we can't always see how you're working and we can't always get a black and white answer, um, we know that Jesus is the right direction. I pray that we as a church family would live out this kind of faith in such a way that the people around us, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, would see us live differently in a way that draws them to Christ. And may you get the glory for every life changed. In his name we pray, amen.